welcome to New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. Well, I'm Pastor Ben. It's my privilege this morning to share God's word with you as we close out our sermon series, The Way Home. But as we step into the last part of the sermon series, I want you to think about something. What would the perfect child be like? What would the perfect child be like? Now, depending on your age, you're going to have a different perspective on this, right? If you're younger, if you're a child or you're in your teenage years, you might be thinking, okay, what would it take for me to be perfect? You know, maybe I should actually clean up my room once in a while. Maybe I should listen to my parents. Maybe I should eat the food that's on the table prepared for me by my mom, whatever it is, right? There's a few things we could probably do to get a little bit better, right? To be closer to perfect. Now, if you're a little bit older and you haven't started a family yet, you might be thinking or dreaming of the perfect child, right? What would the perfect daughter look like? What would the perfect son look like? What would they look like? How would they act? What would they be interested in, right? What would the perfect child be like? Now, if you're like me and you have some youngsters, you have long given up on having the perfect child, right? You've gone through enough life to realize that's not going to happen. But if you look at your kids, you think, you know what? They're actually pretty good. And if I just did this or that, or maybe they could maybe eat their food sometimes without whining or pick up their stuff so I don't step on their Legos again, that would be great, right? We have some ideas to make it a little bit better. Now, if you're a grandparent in the room, you tell your grandkids over and over and over again, you guys, you're just so perfect. But if I pulled you off for a cup of coffee and I said, tell me about your grandkids, you might say something like this, well, they're really good, but you know, if they would just do this, or the parents might do this, you know, maybe they'd be a little bit better. Now, we all know there's no such thing as the perfect kid. But I want you to imagine with me for a second, if there was, what would that be like? Of course, if we had the perfect kid, it has to start with the perfect birth, right? So, of course, you go to the hospital, and it's a, it's a perfect birth. There's no pain, even without drugs no complications, everything is wonderful, and this new child comes into the world. Now, of course, if you have the perfect child, you know that that child does not cry. And the reason that child does not cry is because they can perfectly articulate their wants and needs. And so you're holding your newborn, and your newborn looks up at you, and it's time to feed for the first time, and he or she says, dear mother, pardon me, may I bother you for some sustenance? And you say, of course, dear one, I will offer you some food. And then your child feeds for the first time, of course, and it's perfect, right? Now, after they feed, they have to go to the bathroom. But remember, they're the perfect child. So they're already potty trained. So when he has to go to the bathroom, he or she gets up, makes their way to the bathroom. Everything's perfect, flushes the toilet, washes their hands for the full 30 seconds, makes their way back into the room. They are the perfect child. 
As they get older, the teeth start coming out, right? They're ready to eat solid foods, but they don't need you to feed them because, of course, they can feed themselves. And not only do they feed themselves, but they can feed the whole family. They go into your fridge, which most of the time is empty or has odds and ends in it. But out of that mess, they make a gourmet meal for you and the family. And then here's the best part. They clean up afterwards. They are the perfect child. Now, when they get close to the teen years, you get a little bit concerned because you're seeing everyone else's kids and you kind of know how that goes. You remember yourself as a teenager and you're thinking, okay, this is where it all, all the wheels fall off. But instead, they perfectly respect you, respect their teachers. They work hard on the field, in the classroom, and at home. They are the perfect child. And because of this, they earn a full ride scholarship to some elite college. They go through, get a great degree, and meet the person of their dreams. And they bring that person home, and you love them too. They get married, have the perfect marriage, and then they have the perfect grandchild. This is the perfect child. Now, of course, we know this is not realistic, right? We live in a fallen world and we can, it just takes us two seconds of parenthood to realize we don't actually have the perfect child. In fact, as we look around, we know that no one is perfect except for one. As we read through scripture, time and time again, we know there is one perfect one, Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life so he could become the perfect sacrifice and die on the cross for our sins to put his perfection on us to allow us to step into the perfect place, which is heaven. That's Christ's work in our lives. But as we think about Jesus being the perfect man, have you ever wondered what the perfect man was like as a child? You see, as we dig through scripture, we don't actually hear a lot about Christ's childhood. Yeah, we hear about the birth and he goes to the temple and he's circumcised. The Magi visit and they drop off their gifts and then he runs off to Egypt because of King Herod. Right, we read about that. But then scripture is essentially silent all the way till his baptism about the age 30. So what happened between that time? What happened for those 28 years? What was the perfect man like as a teenager, as a child, as a young adult? Now, I don't know about you, but I've wondered that a lot. And so as we close out our sermon series, The Way Home, we're actually going to step into the one story, the one piece of history recorded in scripture about Christ's childhood. And that is brought to us in the Gospel of Luke. This is what Luke writes. Now, every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. So as we step into this piece of history, we see that Jesus, he's 12 years old. So he's not quite a young boy, but he's not quite a young man, right? He's caught in the middle. And when you're caught in the middle, you do whatever your parents tell you to do, right? You're reliant on them. And so if they have traditions, if they have patterns, if they're going on vacation, you are going with them. And this was the case for Jesus. Every year, his family went to the Passover. And so every year, because of that, he went to the Passover. And the Passover was a huge deal for all of the Jewish people. In fact, it was such a big deal that it was built into their law that if you were a male Israelite and you were healthy and you didn't have some amazing excuse not to go, you were expected to go to the Passover. And the reason this was such a big deal is because what the Passover represented. 
Now, if you have read through the Old Testament, right, the Hebrew Bible, and you've, you've studied these stories or you've been in Sunday school, you know about the enslavement of the Israelites. For 400 years, they were enslaved in Egypt. And it was a horrible experience. And they cried out to God and begged for his mercy, and he answered. And he sent this guy. His name was Moses. And Moses became his spokesman. And he went to Pharaoh and said, you need to let my people go. And if you don't, there's going to be some real consequences. And Pharaoh said, no. And God started sending the plagues, one after another, all the way to 10. And the 10th one was finally the breaking point. You see, what happened in the 10th plague was that God said, if you do not receive my mercy, right, if you don't relinquish my people, if you don't listen to me, then all the firstborn children were going to die. And this was across the whole area. No one was excluded. But built into this was mercy, was grace. Because God said, if you take a spotless lamb, and if you spread the blood, if you kill the lamb and spread the blood on the door frames, on the wooden door frames, then I will pass over you and you will not receive judgment. But if you reject me and reject my way, then you receive the consequences due you. Now, if this sounds familiar, it should, because this is also, if we fast forward through time, this is the story of Jesus, isn't it? Because the whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, in our lives and creation is pointing towards Jesus. Because when Jesus comes, he is the perfect one. He's the perfect lamb whose blood is shed on the wooden cross. And if we take God up on his promise and we trust in his promises and receive him in faith, then once again, we are passed over. And our sins are not viewed in this way. But if we reject God, we get the consequences. This is the Passover feast that they were going to. The Passover feast to celebrate God's mercy on their life. And so they went. And this is what happened. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know. So this festival comes to a close and the family leaves. And see, they are used to the rhythms. Christ is used to the rhythms. And so they expect him to just fall in line and do what he's done every year, right? Because every year, as long as he was available, he went to this thing. This was their rhythm. He knew that every March or April, depending on where it fell that year, that they were going to be in Jerusalem. He knew that they were going to travel from Nazareth, their, their small town of about 2,000 or less people, travel 100 miles to Jerusalem, about a five days journey with family and friends in their caravan. They were going to picnic and sing, right? He knew all of these rhythms. He knew where they typically stay in Jerusalem. He knew what they were going to do for the feast. And then they, he knew that also the feast after Passover was the feast of unleavened bread, which was another six days, so seven days in total of festival. He knew all these things. He knew the rhythms. As a 12-year-old boy, they expected him to just fall into the patterns of the family. And that's why when they all leave, they just assume he's with them. Now, as you can imagine, this creates some turmoil. This is what Luke tells us. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. So off they go, assuming he's with the group. And they travel about a day, so about 20 miles-ish or so. And the nighttime comes, right? The time when the families come back together. 
and the kids who have played and done all the things all day, it's time to rest. It's time to get ready for the next day's journey. And all of a sudden, Jesus doesn't show up. Now, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're a babysitter, aunt or uncle, right? If you've ever had to care for a child, you've probably had this feeling before, right? You take the child into Menards, you go into Walmart, you go into a mall, and in your walk and they're falling behind you, everything's going smoothly. You look up at something, you assume they're looking at it with you, and then when you turn around, they're gone. We've all had this happen to us, or at least we've been the child who did this to our parents, right? And you get a little bit anxious and you start looking. And the more you have to look as you bend around that first aisle and you don't see him, you start walking a little bit faster. You get a little more anxious. And after three aisles that you can't see them, you start getting very, very nervous and you start developing a story in your mind about what has happened to this child. This is where Mary and Joseph are. They're traveling around for their friends and their family and saying, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? And everyone's saying, no. In fact, we haven't seen him this entire trip. We haven't seen him since when we were having that great celebration in Jerusalem. And you can just feel Mary and Joseph, their heart is sinking because Jerusalem is no small town like Nazareth, where they're from. Right? Jerusalem is 25,000 people. And during this festival season, it'd be five times bigger than that. So well over 100,000 people. This is where their 12-year-old boy is. And they are terrified. Now, it's not recorded here, but I am assuming that instantly when they knew that, they turned around no matter how dark and dangerous it was, and they trucked off to Jerusalem the day's journey back. And when they arrived, this is what happened. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So for three days, they looked for their child. Three days of anxiety and worry and concern and false stories they've developed in their mind. And they finally find him. But built into this section of scripture is so much. So much storyline of what's happening to Mary and Joseph and the boy, but also what's looking towards the future and their future experience. You see, how long did Mary search for her child? How long did Mary think her, that her child was lost? Three days. In the future, she would experience something very similar to this, wouldn't she? She would wait three days for her son that she was convinced was gone forever. But Christ would come back he would rise from the dead and be restored to her, just like he's going to be restored to her in this young time in his life. We also see something else significant. We see the temple, and this is very, very significant because the temple is the place where God meets man. This place where God meets man. In fact, Jesus made an amazing prediction about the temple when he was in his earthly ministry. He told the people, and they laughed at him. He said, the temple will be destroyed. And of course, they thought this is lunacy because they knew that every good Israelite male would fight to the death to protect, to protect the temple, right? This was never going to happen. But in 66 AD, the temple was destroyed and Jesus was correct. And it wasn't just any temple, it was King Herod's temple. Now, if you were here last week, you remember King Herod was a, a politically savvy king. And as the Greek culture came in and he imposed it on the people, this disrupted the Jewish people. They didn't like it. 
And so in a political move, he built the temple for them, King Herod's temple, God's temple. And people love that temple. He used that temple to pacify the people. But remember the story about King Herod. King Herod had to be the biggest storyline in the day. And this is why Jesus, his birth was such a big deal because Jesus was gonna steal the headlines. A new Jewish king would steal the headlines and steal the throne and King Herod would not have it. And so he went out to kill every child two years and younger because of his paranoia, because he had to be the biggest storyline. Of course, Jesus flees into Egypt just like the Israelites lived in Egypt for a season before God called them back, fulfilling the prophecy in Hosea 11. He comes back and he ends up in this very same temple. And what happens? Christ becomes the biggest headline because he's astonishing the people. Now, the reason he's astonishing the people is not because he's a sixth grader raising his hand and asking simple questions. No, he's talking to the teachers. He's talking to the rabbis. These are like college professors. And when they're having this dialogue back and forth, it's not a simple, hey, is the sky blue or why is the sky blue? Right, where it, it responds with just the answer. Now, this is a college-level dialogue where they're asking questions to sharpen the minds of the people listening. And those people are spitting questions back and the iron is sharpening the iron. This is what's happening and this is why the people are so amazed at this young 12-year-old boy because he should not have the capacity to do this. And they were astonished at his understanding. They were astonished as he showed who he truly was. And this is what happens. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. So when Mary and Joseph show up, they say something that you probably said to your child at some point in time, maybe not quite the same way, but we've all kind of said something like this. When our child doesn't come home soon enough or maybe goes around the third aisle and we don't know where they are, we say something like this, right? You have worried your mother and I sick, right? She's anxious. She has been anxious for four days where her son is missing and she's worried. She's concerned. That's a natural human response to something like this. But there's also something else at play besides this anxiety. You see, what else happens? It says she was astonished by her own child. And this isn't like the, hey, my child can do this. This is amazing. It's a little bit advanced. She's becoming fully aware of something she intellectually knew, but now she was really getting. That the child she was raising is truly the son of God. He has wisdom beyond all understanding. And if you were the parent of Jesus, this would make you incredibly uncomfortable. Because as humans, when we're encountered with the wisdom of, of God, when we encounter that, when we really see God for who he is and see Christ for who he truly is, it's gonna make us a little bit uncomfortable. Well, here's Christ's response to that discomfort. Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. His response is this. Why are you confused? Why are you uncomfortable? Why don't you get it? What did you expect? 
Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Another way to say this is, didn't you know that I'd be doing my father's business, living out my father's mission in the world? You see how that can be uncomfortable? You see, many times as humans, if things are not quite normal for us or don't quite fit in our plans, especially even when God works and it doesn't fit in our plans, it makes us uncomfortable and we don't like it. And God's response would be the same. What did you expect? Didn't you know I'd be about my business? Didn't you know that I'm going to do my mission in this world, whether you like it or not? In fact, sometimes I have to do my mission in a way that will make you uncomfortable for it to be effective, to bring hope into the world. I don't know about you, but this last year I experienced that a lot, didn't you? Where I saw God doing some amazing things, but it made me incredibly uncomfortable. It wasn't normal. It wasn't how I wanted him to do it, right? He was supposed to do it my way, but he did some amazing things, especially through our church here. Amazing things where he made all of us uncomfortable. He made me uncomfortable. And his response to me at that point in time would have been, what'd you expect? I'm gonna do my business. I'm gonna do my work. I'm gonna do my mission. And yeah, you're gonna be uncomfortable, but I want you to celebrate what I'm doing. Well, as Luke closes, he closes with this statement. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. You see, I love Mary's posture here. It's the posture that we all should have when it comes to God, right? What does she do? She wonders, she ponders, she treasures these things. Who is this child? What does this mean? What is he gonna do in this world? What is God doing in this world? What is God's work in this world? What is his mission in this world? You see, Mary has this beautiful posture that we should have too. When times are tough and times are difficult, the question shouldn't be, how do we normalize stuff? The question should be, how do we get in line with what God is doing for his mission and his purpose in this world? You see, as we close out this series, I don't want to leave you with just some discomfort. I want to give you some comfort as well. And there's really a couple things that we've been kind of reiterating all throughout the series, kind of this under, undercurrent of truth. You see, the first thing that we've been holding on to and really brings hope to the Christian's life is this, that no matter how difficult life is, no matter how much loss we've experienced, no matter how much our lives have been disrupted, we know that this is not our home. This is not our home. Our true home is waiting for us. For all those who are in Christ Jesus, the family of Christ, we all go home someday to heaven to be with our Savior. And we hold on to that hope. And we grieve differently than the world grieves. But there's a secondary truth that we hold on to in this scripture and we see in Christ's life. That there is a promise that we just aren't waiting for that day someday. We don't just hold out hope and someday we get to experience. No, we're told in Scripture that this very same Jesus who templed among us as humans for 33 or so years, right, this same Jesus says that he temples within us Will we await to be in heaven. He lives among us. He lives inside of us as believers, which means when we go through the difficult times and we're shedding those tears, 
He's shedding tears with us. When we experience loss, he's there to empathize with us. Right, when we're celebrating, he celebrates with us. Every step of our journey, no matter how good or how difficult or what we're going through, we're promised time and time again that God has already made his home within us. 